Okay, I'll go ahead and call to order the Iowa City's Economic Development Committee meeting for Wednesday, October 28, 2019. Um, we like to start by going around the room and having everybody introduce themselves just so it helps with the minutes. So maybe if we can start over here with you, Andrew. Yeah, I'm Andrew Ballard with New and Monson Architects. Michael Sather with the Tailwind Group. Kyle Smith with the Tailwind Group. Nancy Bird, the Iowa City Downtown District. Zachary Smith, Iowa City Press Citizen. Laura Burgess. Ashley Monroe, Assistant City Manager. Uh, Ray Heiner, City of Iowa City. Uh, Paul Barnum, Little Village. Zach Newman, Little Village. Eleanor Delk, City Attorney. Simon Andrew, Assistant to the City Manager. Jeff Fruin, City Manager. Wendy Ford, Economic Development Coordinator. <coughs> Rockney Cole, City Council. Jim Throgmorton, Mayor. Kim Betchka, Kirkwood Community College. Susan Mim, City Council. Thank you, everybody. Item number two, consider approval of minutes from the June 3rd, 2019 EDC meeting. So moved. Second. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes 3-0. Thank you. Item number three, consider recommendation to support Kirkwood Community College English Language Learner Program expansion with $25,000 per year for five years. Are you going to start, Wendy? Or? I'll okay. start. Um, uh, hi, everybody. As you know, we have been working on your strategic priorities over the last couple of years at least. Um, the first one of which is shown up here on the um, slide wallpaper, if you will, um, and that is to promote a strong and resilient economy. And a couple years ago, you had added a tactic in there um, through cooperation with the Iowa City Community School District, Kirkwood Community College, and other uh, similar organizations um, to help marginalize populations populations and low-income individuals gain access to skills and training for jobs. So um, we've been doing a lot of research and getting to know many of the um, organizations in our area. Um, and one in particular, Kirkwood Community College, has risen to, um, uh, has stepped up, I guess is the word, um, and uh, is looking at accomplishing two things with an expansion of an ESL program or English language learning program that they have. And Kim Bechica, their vice president for um, continuing ed and training, will be here to tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, in short, Kirkwood is trying to address two things. One is helping people become more employable and thus become employed, and also to help the, uh, the, the work pool, the workforce pool that uh, is, is really tight in our economy. So um, Kirkwood has, uh, the President Lori Sundberg has um, said that um, she will put uh, uh, resources towards this in the southern end of the corridor here, serving especially on the Iowa City, Coralville, North Liberty area, um, and that to do a good job of that, they'll need about $150,000 for five years. Um, they've been able to come up with half of that money, and they're asking the uh, cities locally to chip in and staff is recommending that City of Iowa City contribute $25,000 a year for that five-year period to grow that, uh, to grow the, uh, or expand the, the ELL program for our residents here on the south end of the corridor. Um, there are a lot of numbers that um, would support the dire need. I think the one that, um, the one that 
really hit me was one that talked about um, the need for English lang language learning, additional ling English language learning for kids in the Iowa City Community School District. And just about five or six years ago, 300 kids were on the list for um, needing that ELL. And right now, it's at least 1,600. So that's just kids in the school district. And they obviously come from uh, families with, uh, with parents as well. So you can see that need really expands once you look um, out past the, the families and the parents of those kids who need work as well. So without going any further um, beyond saying staff is recommending this $25,000, I will hand it over to Kim Bechica who can talk a little bit more about it. Great. And so I've got, I have some handouts here, not necessarily that I'm going to go through it, but it does have a lot of data if you want to, you know, look at that at a, at a later time, both in terms of the projections we're seeing for growth of English language learners, um, as well as the, all of the different audiences we, we serve, their um, employment rates currently, et cetera. So um, the point of that being that um, we've really looked at our data and the community's data um, in coming forward with this request. As you know, Lori, our president's been with us just a year, and it was in the first quarter that she was here at Kirkwood that she recognized this as a uh, problem as well, and quite frankly said, having waiting lists on the southern tier of the area for English language learners is not acceptable. Um, and so that's when we, our team, put together a proposal in terms of the funding we would need uh, to do two things. One is to expand the sections we have available because we do have waiting lists, so we're not able to offer enough sections based on our current level of funding. With offering more sections, we also want to offer more sections out in the communities. So for example, we would like to be offering classes for parents of kids in the school system in the school system, right, um, where they are comfortable coming to um, every day. And then also out into the communities such as North Liberty, uh, Coralville. We have more space at the Johnson Regional Center, but at our main campus, uh, we, we don't have any more space to offer classes. So, um, the and the other component of that is at Kirkwood, uh, we have four levels of English uh, language learning. And in level one, it's both individuals who need literacy as well as who have a, a low level of English speaking. And we believe um, in talking with community partners as we prepared our proposal here in the southern end that uh, we are committed to working more closely with the community partners to determine if we can um, all um, rally around the same curriculum and then potentially out of this 150,000 be able to fund some of the community organizations to provide literacy ESL and then they would transfer into level one when they are ready for the level one ESL based on the score and I know there's some interest in that from a meeting that we had and that really just goes to uh, we know where our niche is and we know community providers have a niche more in the literacy area so to speak so we're excited about that opportunity to create that pathway. Um, the second area that we will be supporting with this funding is what we call earn and learn programs. 
So as English language learners get to levels two and three, um, research shows that they're at a point where, given the right contextualized industry-based curriculum, they can compete for good jobs in the community. So an example program which has uh, received um, lots of press and you might be familiar with is at Nordstrom. Uh, they have an earn and learn program. Uh, we worked with them on that program. We provide the contextualized English component where we are helping them with the safety processes and procedures, safety language, other terminology used within the plant. And then um, Nordstrom worked on helping create a career pathway internally to the organization and also reshaping a bit um, some of the first jobs that they get while they're st still learning English as a way to help them. And that's been very successful. Um, and we also have um, a couple healthcare systems that are also launching um, earn and learn programs as well. And we do have interest in uh, two North, North Liberty companies in particular that may be very interested in an, a, an earn and learn program. So we believe there is opportunity to also accelerate English language learner learning to help individuals obtain good wage, good quality jobs with um, benefits. Many of our students are working and in the data, you can look and see those percentages. However, many are working outside of the region. They travel an hour <coughs> or two to get to where they want to work and then come back, and they want to work in this region. Um, so that is our goal as well. Um, uh, if uh, this can move forward, we will work with um, the city of Iowa City on a memorandum of understanding so that we have clear uh, metrics and goals which will be reported back, however you want those, quarterly or annually, um, to ensure that we're meeting your expect expectations um, related to the funding. Well, thank you. I know that, gosh, probably more than, well, it's been more than a year ago, I know I met with, and I think former Councilor Kingsley Botchway did, and I think, Jim, maybe you were involved in one of these meetings with faculty at the Kirkwood Center here in Iowa City who do a lot of the ELL training and, and classes, and they were talking about that same thing, the, the lack of space, the lack of staff, and just the incredible need. And there's a group of people kind of polling what was actually going on in the community through maybe some churches, religious organizations, um, and different community organizations to help do this. So I'm really excited to see a more formalized plan coming to us uh, and partnering with Kirkwood and the city to try and uh, bolster the the um, room for more training and one of the things we've talked about a lot are those job opportunities and so difficult if you cannot communicate so I'll be very supportive of this and uh, look forward to being able to take this to the full council other comment yeah I mean this is an easy choice and I'm in particular really glad to see the collaboration that we've effective collaboration we've had other staff as well as Kirkwood as well as the Iowa City School District and I think everyone in the community talks about that we each have our own individual mission Kirkwood has a lot of things on their agenda we do as well that's our primary mission but when when we can cooperate uh, on a case-by-case -case basis especially on a group of people that we really all care about that it just really warms the heart to see that happen um, really 
excited about it. Slightly different topic, but I'm also hoping moving forward that the Kirkwood will also reach out to the community about some maybe reverse language skills in terms of maybe them teaching us, you know, if there are any other programs along the lines, oh, you know, with great. Arabic or Spanish or Mandarin. Mm -hmm. Obviously, funds yeah. are limited. Um, but hopefully we can see more of those sort of as well, because I'm excited to learn with all these, these uh, alternative language speakers. Yes. Hopefully we can pick up some of those skills yeah. as well. But fabulous. Well, I too think it's a terrific uh, suggestion. I look forward to seeing an elaboration of the proposed plan. You're right, Susan. I've had several conversations with people out at the Iowa City campus at, of Kirkwood mm -hmm. about this, but not Lori. I've not talked with Lori about it and not talked with you about it, and it's good to see you again, isn't okay. it? Yeah, uh, so I'm really struck by some of the data that's in the memo and also in the handout that you just gave us, and the stuff in the handout does not appear in the memo, but. Uh, with regard to adults, I noticed that over the six years from 2010 to 2016, there was a net increase of 8,481 people in Johnson County, not Iowa City, but Johnson County. Of those, 67% were international immigrants, and English language skills can often be a barrier to finding employment. That's totally consistent, of course, with everything I hear out in the community. And that gets me to the next thing, which is uh, one of these charts you show us. Um, uh, a pie chart about languages. Yes. Mm -hmm. Spoken by, I, it, it, this is what's the total population of the people listed here? Um, I don't have that. 872. Okay, so it's a sample or what? Um, that's our total number of students in the Iowa City area oh, right now okay. that were serving. So, but it's students, not yes. not adults, no. right? Well, it's our adult students that we serve. All right, yeah. so what I'm really struck by, and this again is completely consistent with what uh, I think most of us have seen, and uh, I'm sorry, my vision is really bad. I just had injections in my eyes. So Spanish, 26% of the people that were listed are Spanish speakers. Uh, almost 30% are French speakers, mm -hmm. and another 17% um, are Arabic speakers. So that's roughly 75% of all of the recent immigrants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, so I think Rockdy's right. It'd be great if we had a little bit of inverse uh, education right. as well. Mm -hmm. But the crucial need is to help these adults learn to speak or understand a sufficient amount of English to be able to function well at the level they want to be able to function at, too, in our community. It would provide a great, great service. Yep. Fabulous. One last question I had. Um, Kirkwood is providing half of the funding that they need. Obviously, there's been discussion with Iowa City, and staff has made the recommendation um, that we would do 25. I'm assuming you're having discussions with other municipalities and or organizations, companies even within the area. Yes, we are. So uh, we're having uh, conversations with the city of Coralville, the city of North Liberty, the Johnson County supervisors, city of Tiffin, and city of West Branch. Are you doing any requests of any of the businesses in the southern um, end of the corridor as we, well? Or? We, we held um, an employer forum, and so we're in the process now of making calls back to those employers. My um, uh, interpretation of the meeting is that more than likely they will contribute their earn and learn okay. um, instead of a cash contribution, okay. but we are talking with them about that. Okay, great. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? Okay. Uh, get back here. So, do we need a motion on this to send it to council? Where are we at? So yes. moved. 
Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Passes 3-0. Thank you very much, Kim. Thank this is exciting. Yeah. This is. Very much. And we'll be back in touch soon. All right. Okay. Very good. Thanks for coming, Kim. Oh. <clears throat> Item number four, discuss the Tailwinds proposal for historic preservation and redevelopment project on the south side of the 100 block of East College Street. Whoever wants to come on up that's going to be presenting, please do so. Andrew. And I'll start us out here. Um, today you're going to hear about a project proposal involving the historic preservation of three 19th century buildings uh, and a nine-story building behind them downtown. Um, in July, we received a TIF financing request, a preliminary request from the Tailwinds Group who um, proposed keeping the buildings that uh, we also dearly love on the uh, south side of the 100 block of College Street in downtown Iowa City, um, removing um, some additions to made to a couple of those buildings to make way for a building that would fit between the alley in that block and behind the buildings of that block. Um, the project would ensure the historic preservation of all of those buildings along College Street that, that are involved, and that goes from Martini's building up to what uh, what housed Gray's and, and a Mexican restaurant shortly after that um, in the Dooley block. And I've got to keep reminding myself which ones are which by the old names by using the last known retailer that was in those buildings. So forgive me if I'm doing that uh, too much here. The nine-story building they proposed behind the buildings, uh, the old buildings, would have 170 apartment units in it, mostly studios, ones and two bedrooms. I think from the numbers I figured out there would only be uh, a handful of two bedrooms. Uh, the first two floors of the nine stories would be a parking garage that would uh, accommodate almost all of the, or, or uh, it would it would accommodate many of the parking uh, requirements needed for the project, but not quite all. So we would anticipate um, the developers coming back uh, requesting a waiver or to work with us on fees in lieu for some of the parking requirements not able to be met on that site. And Wendy, uh, waiver is permitted when historic preservation is involved, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, there is a provision for that the, through the Board of Adjustment. Um, so obviously a nine-story building um, exceeds the uh, the desired height buildings that we've been talking about since we um, updated our tax increment financing policies in 2017, um, at which time we said, well, we'd consider a taller building if the developer would come forward with exceptional public benefits. And, and they, knowing that, um, have come back to us in this preliminary uh, proposal with what we think are, um, are are worth considering as exceptional public benefits. The first is that they would uh, landmark, uh, locally uh, designate as historic landmarks the, the buildings that are not already local landmarks. Interestingly, the Martinis building is, and I think I indicated that it would need to be locally designated in my memo. That was an error. It was already designated both local and and uh, national before. So the other two buildings would be designated local historic landmarks, which would thereby ensure they'd be saved for perpetuity. 
um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as well as saving the buildings, they would also renovate and uh, they have plans for bringing the buildings back to what would be more uh, of a uh, character that would go with the the, the time that the buildings were built, and Andrew's going to talk a little bit more about that as well. Uh, <clears throat> along with historic preservation, there was a state sustainability requirement in our TIF policies, uh, which uh, which read that uh, any new building would have to be built to LEED Silver certified. And the developers come to us and said, we will do this nine-story building to LEED Platinum certified uh, level. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> additionally, we feel that the uh, the project should gain some adi some additional s sustainability uh, credit for leaving buildings in place. Um, as <clears throat> Carl Elefant said, and he's the uh, former past president uh, or the former president of the American Institute of Ar Architects, he said, the most sustainable building is the one already standing. So not only would we have a new building that was built to lead platinum, we would have, we would be saving buildings from being raised and landfilled, essentially. Um, and then finally, as a third um, exceptional public benefit, the developers have been working with a local nonprofit or a, a local arts group, I should say, um, for space that would be above what is now the Union Bar. And some of you know that that was once um, a ballroom space up there, and, and we feel that the, um, that the reuse of that space as a public gathering space for uh, arts, for the arts, would be uh, would be a great uh, public benefit as well, and help uh, ensure that uh, we continue to uh, be known as you know one of the greatest small cities of the arts by enhancing that downtown. So along with those exceptional public benefits, um, we feel that the project would also reactivate a part of the street that has been uh, typically quiet, well, very quiet in front of what was once the field house uh, building and hasn't, had, hasn't really had a tenant in it for years now. And the union building, the union bar building, which is dead during the daytime uh, as well. So um, the, uh, while the developers don't have uh, tenants figured out yet for all of the spaces that they would have. The plans are um, to include a full-service restaurant as well. Um, we would have the, um, the arts group using a portion of the building and the rest to be determined, the rest of the users to be determined in there, but essentially enhancing street life in front of those, um, in front of those buildings. Um, <clears throat> I think those were about the extent of my comments there. I can talk a little bit about the process of uh, attaining a his local historic uh, um, landmark designation, if you like. Um, but we can hear first from the developer and, and uh, let you hear a little bit more about um, the project and also have Andrew introduce the team um, from Tailwinds uh, who are here today. So I'm going to hand this over to you, Andrew. Right. I'll open you. your document here. Uh, let's see. 
I don't know how you got it to be. I went to uh, to view and then did, uh, full screen. Yeah, there we go. It's, it's gone. Okay. Okay. There you go. There's your microphone. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And we dim the lights. Yep. Oh, perfect. Is that good enough, or should I go lower? There's one that says projector. projector on it. Yeah, I mean that that should be that should be plenty fine. That's great. And uh, from the development team, uh, it's uh, Kyle Smith and uh, Michael Sather are in the front right there for me. Um, and I think Wendy covered a lot of the items very well. So um, so as I get into it, I'll, I'll try not to cover too much of the same territory. Um, let's see. So first, uh, just a, a brief overview of the, of the context, the key objectives, which are, are where we mesh with what, this, what the city is going for, we believe the PEDMOL facades um, and the impact on the PEDMOL, then the existing proposed layout, so you get a sense of what the modifications would be um, and then what the value the, the building would bring, and then the new building impact, and that's specifically on the PEDMOL, which is, uh, I think, rightfully um, uh, an area of uh, concern and interest. So first, the, just the, the overview, and I, and I think y'all are probably fairly familiar with, with it and all, but uh, so this is the college block, which is the Martinis, the Crescent block, which contains the Union Bar. I think that's kind of the, the, the um, business that marks the Crescent block, and then the Dooley block, and then this new building would sit behind on the alley, adjacent to the, the graduate. So this, this is the part that would echo uh, what was just discussed earlier. And um, so I'll run through this fairly quickly. We, we talked about the designate historic landmarks, which is going to be, from, uh, from our research, the best protection for the buildings for posterity. Um, below that, the activate Ped Mall with small businesses as part of the, the master plan vision. Um, there will be some modifications of the buildings, and, and I'll, and I'll uh, explain what those would be. But a lot of that action is to, uh, it's it's perfect for right-sizing small businesses. So the spaces were either so large that they, they couldn't be rented out, or they're so large that they um, don't work so well for, for our city. So, so this will um, help enliven the, the Ped Mall by inviting small businesses to, to flourish, which is a, I think is an important um, intent with our city. And then the provide exceptional public benefit. As Wendy mentioned, we're in fairly advanced talks with, uh, with a local arts group. Um, they need to make sure that their finances are all set and everything for, um, before we really go forward with it. But we're extremely excited about that component for the greatest small city, the arts uh, aspect, and, and just the vibrancy of the Ped Mall in the downtown. And then uh, below that, the match new building height to that of the graduate. And I guess this is a, this is a point where I uh, would like to stress that um, the fact that there is a new building behind the historic fabric, the uh, the financers or the pro forma of that new building is a major component uh, to why the uh, the existing Pedmall facing buildings can be saved and, and maintained. So that's a it's a huge part of the the logic of the project. Um, and then, and so that all the discussion of exceptional public benefit also allows us to achieve a slightly greater height, but that height will be capped at the uh, the graduates' black and yellow plaid wall. So we won't go any higher than that, which is 110 feet. 
and then promote environmental sustainability. As we discussed, as the platinum is uh, it's uh, a challenge that um, we considered deeply in the office. We we talked amongst ourselves what it would take to achieve that, and um, and we're up for the challenge and, and excited about. Uh, the city's stance on um, carbon emissions and uh, uh, climate disaster, et cetera. So, so we're excited about that, and the city's excited about it. Then the reuse of the existing buildings, as Wendy discussed, and the densification of downtown, which, which we feel is this project does very appropriately. Uh, it'll bring a range of tenants. There, there is a range of studio, one bed, and some two bed. Uh, and um, I think that'll increase the vibrancy of the Pet Mall environment, the downtown environment. One of the reasons that we're able to achieve the LEED Platinum is because uh, the LEED system it really encourages buildings that are so close to walkable cities or, or, or nearby transportation networks. So just a, a few, just to give some historical perspective on, um, on the Ped Mall facades first. Uh, so this is, uh, is looking over the, the Dooley building. Um, and then the Crescent building, or Crescent block, and then, then um, uh, the college block. And you can see in the, the next two slides, they show kind of a, a slight before and after around 1929. So <clears throat> the Dooley block is, is uh, um, a whole uh, feature on the left in 1910. And then around 1929, uh, it was uh, cut up a little bit or, or renovated to be uh, Sears and Roebuck. And, and that'll become evident in the uh, when we look at it in plan. So that's one uh, major transition that the, the Dooley block went through. The other one is the Crescent blocks transition. <coughs> And you can see on the left, this is a 1925 picture. The building is uh, uh, 18, or, yeah, 1800s, I believe. Um, it's it's all as, as one hole on the left, and you can see that. Um, uh, Montgomery Ward moved in and made some changes uh, to the, the lower left of the facade. Then those were changed again later on um, to become what is now the Union Bar. So these are the, the um, existing facades below in an elevation, and then what we propose to, uh, to change about them or, or modify. And basically, um, you can see that the, the, the changes are fairly slight. On the, what is on the right, the Dooley block, uh, was the Sears and Roebuck. Um, the facade's in fairly good shape. It would be uh, cleaning up, replacing pieces that are broken off, and that sort of thing. The most significant alteration we would do would be to, uh, to take the Union Bar part, which is in the, the lower left of the Crescent, and try to and bring it back up to speed to where it was in the Montgomery Ward days. And in addition, and this relates to the, uh, to the cultural aspect would be to um, what is now, uh, what was the soapbox, I believe, and now as part of revival, is kind of an off, off side thing, revival, would be to build that as a more of a substantial entryway uh, into the building, consistent with what was there earlier. So that's that's on the Pedmall side. So then, looking back on the um, on the opposite side, you can get a sense of what these additions are that we would be um, that would be cleaning away, so that the original blocks could stand. So I've, we've called out the Dooley block, Crescent block, and College block. Those are the original um, features. Then, when Montgomery Ward, at some point in its history, it extended out the back, and Sears and Roebuck did a similar thing. And then there's some scattered uh, sort of lean-to additions um, that would be removed. In this proposal. So in, in the ground plan, you can see where the additions are. You can see dash what the, the, the proposed new building is. 
And then this would be uh, the, the new scheme. So there's a, a shared entry into the, we've labeled the shared garden there. Um, and that would, that would provide access both into the new building and then some supplementary access, say, to get up to the third floor of the Crescent Block. Uh, if we could locate an elevator there, that sort of thing. So that was, that's the uh, proposed scheme diagrammatically, uh, the, the basic layout. Now on to these, the next two and final two slides are about the, uh, the impact that we were studying on the Ped Mall itself. So you can see the, this is the 110 uh, that is the graduate building height. So we would keep to that. What this is looking at first is the, the mix of units. You can see the two levels of parking, some levels of studio, then one two bed, two beds and two bed penthouse is the proposal right now as it stands. Uh, you can see the, the crescent block and then sight lines for one with the dashed red line uh, which, I mean, that, I think that demonstrates that it's, it's not very visible from even all the way across to the pet mall, looking dead on, and I'll, I'll flesh that out a little bit later. And the other aspect this looks at is uh, shadow lines. So would, the concern could conceivably be that, uh, you know, during the summer or the winter, it's going to shade the ped mall and overshadow it and, and make it inhospitable. And what we found with this diagram is that, so say this is the winter, winter solstice, it does shade the ped mall. However, the buildings of the ped mall themselves also shaded. And then in the equinox, March, September, and June 20, there's, uh, there's no impact on the ped mall at all. And to give that, so that's, that's a cross-section looking through to give some variation. And this is on visibility, this study more than on the shading, because I, I think the previous diagram covers the shading. Uh, we have three views, one from kind of in front of the, uh, the Weather Dance Pavilion, one directly across, and then one from the intersection uh, with South Clinton. Uh, so one, you can see that you, you would be able to see part of the building from in front of the Weather Dance Pavilion, uh, but it, I, our impression was in looking at it in 3D that it, it seems set back and it's a relatively minor view of it. Directly across, uh, it would be difficult to make out. Depending where you stand, you could see nothing of it or it could peek out in the corner. And then from South Clinton, uh, this is the building here. Uh, very low visibility, and given that the trees and the foliage, uh, it seemed extremely, extreme, seemed almost negligible to us. So. So yeah, there's the. Uh, I think that's the full run through. Yeah. Shall we open it up to questions? Are you ready for that? Yeah, I or think would you be fine. like to but have your y'all can team join speak? if you want to? Yeah, you're welcome. Come, come, at the table. come on up. Right, come here. <clears throat> Is there anything that either of you would like to add to it before we kind of get into it? I think we're fine with questions. Okay. Well, I must say when I looked at this, um, one of the things that surprised me, and I mean, I understand the depth of those buildings because we've you know kind of looked at that before as, as some of this has you know been brought up, but it really did surprise me that when you stand across the Ped Mall, you virtually can't see it at all. I mean, I, I really thought you'd be able to see at least a couple of stories over the top of those buildings. And so I really was surprised that you really can't see anything. And so I think that's a real positive. And, and I know that you know that we had asked about, um, you know, the shadow impact on the Ped Mall. And, and I had certainly asked that with staff because 
that can already, I think, be an issue, especially in the winter. You know, we get the snow, we get the ice, and if you don't get any sunshine on there, which we don't sometimes, you know, makes it all the worse and didn't, didn't want this to exacerbate that, and that obviously is not the case. The current buildings already, you know, cast a shadow all the way across the, the ground surface. I just want to say as I look at this and, you know, look at the exceptional benefits, um, public benefits here, and I, I mean, we won't go through all of them in detail, but I think they are significant. When we talk about the historic preservation, that has always been one of my key concerns is that you, as people walk that Ped Mall, the, the ambiance of that physical space with those building fronts and with the trees and everything else was, to me, was critically important. And so the fact that we get the opportunity uh, through your work to preserve those and with the historic designations really preserve those forever um, essentially is, is fantastic. You know, the others, the sustainability, um, et cetera, and the public art um, things, I won't go on. But I, I just think we're getting a lot of public benefit um, for a great project. And I think, you know, even given the height, which for some people may have some concerns, it is hidden enough that I, I would certainly hope that it doesn't become a huge deterrent for a lot of people in this process. So I'm, I'm excited with what I see. I'm curious, in terms of this concept of using the height and back and the historic frontage, do you have any examples of any comparables where that's been done in other locations? It's certainly an intriguing concept, um, but I'm still having trouble imagining what that will actually look like. Can you identify other communities that have done something similar? More often, we see that uh, there'll, be, there'll be the shell of the building preserved, and then the new building will be either or take up the inside, you know, sort okay. of a... I guess it's called like facadism, okay. or or that the existing building will be preserved to a degree, and there'll be a, a growth on one of the corners, kind of step back from the street. Uh, I don't. I, I'm sure that I can find examples of, of a similar type of situation to this, but it's uh, less common than you'd think. Like the the actual preservation of the historic building and the new building behind it, 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 it usually it's usually not set back that far. I suppose. The sites that they're we have to work with. Right. Yeah. I was in Burlington, Vermont a couple of years ago. We talk, walked along their pedestrian mall with the mayor, and he described to me a building that was almost exactly like this. At least that's the way I remember it. I don't claim that that's factually true. It would be helpful, though, if you would look into that and see if, in fact, they built a, a structure kind of like this setback. I do remember very clearly the conversation with him because of our own situation down here. Okay. Yeah, I'll look at that. Yeah, his name's Milo. Uh, well, I've forgotten. Wine, 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 Weinberger, I think, but I probably have that wrong. Uh, I have several questions sure. that are okay to go. Yeah, so uh, first of all, you know we went through a very lengthy and sometimes heated conversation about how to amend our TIF policy, uh, and, and we did so two years ago. That is, we completed that two years ago. So I'm very pleased to see this particular proposal coming our way. I, on first blush, it looks to me like it's consistent with what we did in amending the TIF policy back then. But I do think I need to ask some sort of probing questions so I can, you know, basically do my due diligence about it. So one has to do with what I routinely hear from local residents and property owners about all the big new buildings that are being built in town. So the, the basic claim is, why do we need all these new buildings? 
and you know, I hear it all the time. So I'm wondering um, if you could, um, in your own way, describe the kind of due diligence you have been doing to be clear that there's market demand, sufficient market demand for the kind of units you propose to build, and therefore that the building itself would be viable. So can you help us out with that? Sure. Uh, obviously, being in the market for some time, obviously there's significant demand, and I think the demand question comes down to demand and the affordability of the demand, right? And so, I think when you look at Andrew's design, and you think when you look at Newman Munson's design, part of that is where we got to today: smaller units, smaller effective rents. And so that's kind of the start to finish of where we've gotten to this point. It's not so much demand as the whole factor, but also the affordability of the demand. And so I think that's uh, a direct answer to your question. I think to Susan's point earlier uh, in, in some of her comments, I think I'll kick the ball over to Jeff and his team. I'm in the goalposts that your team had put up for us, you know, as far as what you thought this should look like and what that, that process should look like. I think maybe it needs to be commended as well. I think you did a nice job of at least getting us pointed in the right direction so there wasn't a whole lot of time wasted and we got from mm -hmm. the point A to B very quickly. So I want to make sure I make that public comment as well, but to your point. Yeah. Okay, good. So what's the, I don't know, average size of the units? That's a church. Square footage? Or what are you anticipating? Smallest of 350 yeah. and largest of 880? Right. Yeah, okay, that's, that's kind of what I expected, but just, just curious about that. Okay, a few other questions. Uh, one has to do with the height of the building. It's um, the t uh, Wendy's memo indicates nine stories, but when I counted the stories, including the parking, it's 11. So, what's the actual proposed height of the building? Not in feet, but in stories. It's uh, nine stories plus two parking. Yeah, it, okay. It goes to 110 feet. Okay, so a total of 11, though nine would be occupied or used, right? In, yeah. in the Technically, it's underground. I'm, that's your camp. Yeah. One, one of the parking levels is partially underground. But yeah, yeah, I thought I saw that too. Yeah. Okay, I guess, I don't know, 30% underground or something like that. <clears throat> okay, I just wanted to clarify that. Also, uh, and this is really a question for staff probably, do I understand correctly that affordable an affordable housing component would be part of this would by, by code? Yeah, your, your TIF policy requires 15% uh, affordable, and that's at a 60% AMI. And that would be a, a minimum of 20 years. If we get to a point where the TIF period is longer than 20 years, then the affordability period grows uh, as well. Okay, good. With regard to the lead component, I'm thrilled to see that you uh, uh, you are committed to getting certified at lead platinum. I assume that means that you would do what's required to get, get lead platinum certification. Uh, and just to qualify a little bit of what Wendy said earlier, I think our amended policy says lead silver, including eight energy efficiency points, is what Correct. what would be required. So I'm really pleased to see that you're going beyond that, but uh, it's a good thing. So especially in light of our climate action plan and the way we've recently altered it, we need to be on a path toward achieving the goals that we set out. And I, I think, frankly, it would be embarrassing to us if we approved this building without really advanced energy efficiency in it. 
beyond what the state code currently requires, in other words. Okay, so there's that. Uh, and I'm thrilled about the arts group part of it. Uh, I think I know who you have in mind. I'm not going to name anybody, but uh, if, it's, if I'm right in what I, what I think is the case, I'm very thrilled about that. Uh, but I do, uh, the last thing I want to probe a little bit is the, um, there's language in our amended TIF policy about not adversely affecting the historic character of the streetscape. And I, I, I don't remember the exact language and didn't have time to look it up. So the fact that the, the taller, the new building would be set back is a really important part of that. But I'd like to be clear, uh, all of us to be clear about what our policy said or says with regard to that. Can, you got it? And there are a couple of copies of it right there. If you, you want to slide one down to Rockney, but I can read it off here. Uh, for a proposed project that would be located on a street with substantial number of buildings eligible for historic landmark designation, the tallest portion of the project must be stepped back from its street frontages far enough to produce no significant impact on the existing historic character of the street fronts when seen from the public right of way. Good. Very good. So it, obviously you, you're striving to do that. So. I walked by there today, and I, like Susan, I was surprised to look head on at uh, whichever building that is uh, that's the tallest of the of the buildings, and to try to think about a taller building behind it. And I think, oh, well, probably it wouldn't be very visible from the northern side of College Street. But then I walked up to 110, where the one of the bars is, and then down to 125 and just a little bit past it, and I thought, okay, then you can see more of the building. So, uh, in principle, I'd like to see uh, maybe a couple other renderings from those positions so that we can be more clear about the effect on the historic character of the streetscape. And with regard to that, I think um, a more thorough shadow analysis would be completely appropriate because this site is so important to us. But beyond that, I think you're, you've clearly taken the kind of steps that we had in mind. And I want to live out the policies that we work so hard to adopt. So yeah, great start is what I would say, and you're pretty far along. Jim, can I just clarify sure. what you're, and maybe they have this question, about, but what, what more would you want to see on the shadow analysis? I mean, if, if they're committing to not going over 110 feet, and assuming that their graphics are all correct, which I'm assuming they are, and <laughs> well, I'm sure staff will be looking at them and you'll be double checking them. Um, and they're showing, I guess in my vision, the, the worst case scenario in that you showing it basically from the south, you know, to the north, which is where the sun's gonna be when you get the, that most of the, the angle across College Street. So I guess I'm not, I'm not sure what you're asking of them in terms of a more thorough shadow analysis. No, I think uh, architects know what a shadow analysis looks like. This is not really a shadow analysis. What I'm thinking about is looking straight down on the site and seeing the shadow move uh, or where, where it is at each, um, you know, the solstices and the equinoxes so that we can have a much better sense of, of how the shadow plays out in the streetscape. I don't think it would be a barrier, so I'm not trying to throw up a big hurdle, but, but I do think that this is relevant to the, uh, to the site and the project 
and something that architects know how to do. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I appreciate. I appreciate it. It's. It's not a very big ask, and and I don't. Okay. I, I am pretty confident with the graphics we've shown, so, I, so it's not a problem. Okay. Okay. I was going to say, as long as it's not time-consuming and expensive, yeah. uh, it's my key concern. Are we? Are you done, John? Uh, yeah, maybe something else that would come up. But those are the questions that definitely and points I definitely wanted to make. So, so are we making comments now? Sure. Okay. So I, I just got to say I don't like this project. I love it. I think you guys hit it out of the park. Um, and I think when we when we did this TIF revision, I think there was really one key issue, which was were we aiming too high? And were we creating standards that were so high that maybe we wouldn't actually be able to get a market-based proposal to sort of accomplish what our vision is? Um, what we were trying to do is, as this community knows, we've had development controversies over the years, but what we tried to do is communicate enough specifics on the front end so that the developer didn't have to go through this whole process and then really worry at the back end, well, gee, what, what's the community benefit here when, you know, when we're up there and you guys are at the podium? Well, in my view, that's almost too late and that's a failure. In this particular case, on the front end, you guys were able to do this. And I think in particular, the platinum lead, I think, is, is, is fabulous because that was an issue. One of the things we were concerned about was, is that feasible? Is that possible? Um, now, whether it's platinum or gold, I don't want to set the bar too low here, but I would be comfortable with gold if it turns out the platinum is too high, um, if it turns out. But I mean, I think if we're looking at a gap analysis, for purposes of TIF, I think one of the key things that environmental factors is, is you can monetize it internally in terms of the reduction in costs. But there are a lot of things that you cannot monetize in terms of just the public benefit. And so as I see it, that's perfectly appropriate for the community um, in terms of, at least that's my view, uh, to, to help make that happen because a lot of those uh, environmental benefits cannot be monetized. Um, the second piece of it is the landmark. I think that's huge. You know, downtown, um, I think the key issue that we all struggle with on a day-in and day-out basis is how do we preserve what we really love about it while also allowing that economic growth to continue, um, that we don't, you know, pave our parking lot, uh, pave paradise with a parking lot, right, or to that effect. And I think you, you didn't do that. You preserve these historic structures. I think you're going to make them even come more alive and even more activate them, and I'm very thrilled with that. And then finally, this question of the arts organization, you know, I see Nancy Bird there. Um, um, you know, one of the goals and challenges we've all had is, is how do we really provide a variety of different options downtown? Easy to state, hard to do. Um, so to the extent that we can have this development and at the same time sort of activate um, some other spaces that don't involve uh, excessive amounts of alcohol is always a very good thing. Um, so I, I am really thrilled with it. Um, I, I hope that we get, and I think probably will, uh, the rest of council, it's hard to say. But at least for me, I think you guys did a really good good job of taking in these concerns. And in terms of the community benefit, I think what you've outlined, at least as far as I'm concerned, is sufficient, but I would want to see all three. Um, so to me, if we said, oh, well, we couldn't do the platinum, we couldn't do the arts organization, just the landmark, to me, that would not be extraordinary. To me, I think you guys are meeting that standard, and I want to make sure that the term extraordinary doesn't lose all of its meaning. Um, so that if we do deviate, because as Jim really points out, the Pet Mall, we all love it. People of the state of Iowa love 
love it. Um, and they're downtown, everyone loves it. So I think that once, because it's so important to all of us, if we do deviate from what we typically do, we really have to be able to justify it in terms of how does the community benefit at large. And certainly when you talk about nonprofit arts organization, I think we get that community thing. Because one of the things I was concerned about is that those community benefits wouldn't be internalized for the residents themselves. It's good for the residents, but not necessarily for the community. But uh, so I, I love it. I'm, I'm an enthusiastic supporter of it. And I think it's I think it's really thrilling to have an idea and a process that took over a year to do and sort of see the harvest here. And then once you guys are able to make it work, hopefully we'll see other developers say, hey, you know what? These standards aren't too high um, because they are high standards. And I think that was going to be one of the questions whether we could get these. I think this is really one of our first key proposals with this. And of course, the affordable housing piece, absolutely use the market to be able to add that stock, I think is fabulous. Well, one of the other things I would just want to piggyback on is Kyle's comment about staff. Um, I, I think staff has had some, you know, one-off conversations with, with council just to kind of get an idea of where we're at with very preliminary uh, proposal, you know, ideas of what you were thinking. And I think that certainly has allowed the city manager and his staff to, to guide this. And so I think it certainly has facilitated your process and hopefully saved you an awful lot of time in terms of getting to something that, you know, is getting such strong support from this committee at <coughs> first presentation. So I want to thank Jeff and your staff, because um, that's one of the things developers complain about the most is, you know, having to jump through so many hoops but not knowing what the hoops look like. <laughs> so the more we can give you direction up front, you know, and, and good guidance, it saves you an awful lot of time and money and and headaches. So I'm I'm glad that we've been able to to communicate that to staff, kind of what we are thinking in generalities, and that they've been able to um, communicate that to you as well to make this process, at least so far, um, the best that we can. So. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with you, Susan, about that. I, I also want to emphasize that the reason we're doing this right now is to be fully transparent to the broader public about the proposal that's tentatively being presented to us and, and about our response to that proposal. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, they can express whatever views they have. It, 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 uh, it facilitates the overall process when you can kind of do that thing, up, that kind of thing up front rather than wait at the last second and then bam, you could suddenly get an explosion of stuff. And, and I would agree with that, Jim, and it was interesting because you know, there has already been press coverage of this online today. And what is interesting is without people necessarily having any of the details, the bulk of the comments that were already online today are very anti the project because of the TIF. And so I think what that says is that we continue to have a lot of work to do in this community to educate the, the general public about what we do with TIF, why we do TIF, and, and what we see as the benefit to the community. Um, a number of those comments were talking about giving money away to the rich and, you know, that we should be spending more money on affordable housing and, and that sort of stuff. And so I think that people don't, and, and I get it, if they're not, if you're not intimately involved in it, you don't understand all the nuance, nuances, but it, and it's work that we as a city have to continue to do to explain to people that when these kind of projects come forward, um, 
we do that gap analysis and we have an independent outside third party who does that and justifies the fact that this is not an economically feasible project for the developer to do without public assistance. And thus, it, we as a city and the taxpayers ultimately, I look at if, if a TIF is analyzed and done properly, I look at it as an investment of public tax dollars by foregoing those tax dollars that it is an investment in the future of our community. And not only is it an investment in the increased taxable value down the road once we're getting taxes off the whole thing, but as we've talked about here, all those extraordinary public benefits coming out of the project itself, the arts, the historic preservation, you know, the sustainability of the building itself. And so I think what that says is as a staff, as city council members, and as the developers and architects, et cetera, we still have a lot of education to do to explain why we sit here and think this is a good project for our community. I'd elaborate just a little bit. Uh, if you had come to us, or some other developer had come to us with a proposal to demolish the buildings that are not currently designated as historic landmarks and to build a, an eight-story building above them and it behind and without any uh, advanced lead certification, that is, energy efficiency requirements, uh, it would go nowhere. There's no way on earth I would support it. But you have responded to the values that we expressed in our amended TIF policy, and they are values that I believe we should live out because we work so hard to, mm -hmm. to develop those uh, particular amendments. And I think, in general, you know what you've proposed is really responsive to those uh, to that uh, revised TIF policy and would be a, a great asset to the downtown in all sorts of ways that would play out over decades. So, yeah, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. I well, agree. I think with historic preservation, especially downtown, I mean, my preference would be that someday we could get a historic preservation district. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, there's too many ways that that can fail. And so really, um, but I do think generally the carrot is always better than the stick. So to provide those incentives that so people are voluntarily wanting to do it is always better than sort of a government coercion. And I don't think the community, there's just not the unanimity of support on that. So um, I think this is great. I think the other thing, to Jim's point, even though there is going to be some dissent on here. I think once some more of these details come out, I think the community is going to be very, very excited about it. Um, and I think the other part of it is, is that once you do have some of this public benefit, hopefully on the back end, not only will you persuade the people up there, but the, the community at large um, so that they continue to have this sort of development. Because as Jeff points out a lot, you know, we have to plan for continuing reductions from the state legislature, um, and, you know, in terms of our tax base. And as far as I can tell, there's only multiple ways we can deal with that. We can either borrow more, we can either tax more, we can either cut, or we can grow. Um, and I think this is a good example of hopefully planning for those future years that could be lean um, through that continued growth. Any other comments that any of you would like to add? No, other than thank you very much okay. for the opportunity. 
Well, we really appreciate uh, your taking the time to come in and, and the work that you've already done and to give us kind of a, a heads up on what you're thinking and some details. And as Jim said, so this really gets out into the public. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you back with the more formal proposals as time goes on. So thank you. One quick question. Sure. When are we actually going to get the analysis in terms of the TIF proposal in terms of what we will get and also what the projected tax revenue will be and also the protected de debt levy. Sure, as we, as uh, the developer has some comfort now that uh, this proposal uh, would gain some traction, we can start diving into the numbers more in detail. Um, we'll work with them with the same pro forma we've worked with other developers on and uh, see what that gap is and uh, their proposal for how much equity they would have in the project and so forth okay. and tax revenue for it. You know, it's important to remember that even when um, we're giving rebates, the debt service levy for all the jurisdictions um, receiving uh, tax dollars uh, still remains in place. That's protected and they won't receive a, a rebate on that. So the tax dollars will always be greater um, immediately after the project uh, compared to what they are today. Um, and one other thing I'd note is a good chunk of that gap is frequently created by the 15% affordable housing requirement. So as people um, maybe criticize publicly the, uh, the affordability piece, that's a good chunk of what you are investing in in these projects. Thanks, Simon. Okay, good point. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Great. Appreciate it. Great seeing you. Yeah, thank you. Moving on to item number five, consider a recommendation to the city council to proceed to establish the highway commercial tax abatement area. Wendy? Yeah. Okay, so we um, we looked at this a couple of meet one or two meetings ago and have uh, fleshed out the um, urban renewal or sorry urban revitalization <laughs> tax exemption area. Sorry, I'm getting <laughs> renewal revitalization exemption um, confused. This is the urban revitalization tax exemption uh, area or areas, I should say. We're we're calling it one area, the highway commercial area, which is comprised of. Um, you'll see an area concentrated. Um, the mouse doesn't show up here. On the left of the slide is the um, highway one and two eighteen intersection and then traveling east. Um, the next greater concentration is around the Gateway One and the old Paul's site. And continuing east is the area that is uh, central to the um, Southgate and Olympic Court area, including the Pepperwood Plaza and a, a, a part that juts up north there that is not included in the riverfront crossings area. And that was one of our points in, in including this. We wanted to um, extend incentive benefits to areas that did not necessarily have urban renewal um, benefits already. Um, and then finally out on the east side is the uh, the intersection with Highway 6 and, um, and First Avenue over there. So uh, we looked at a number of uh, formulas for um, 
the tax exemption schedule, the state allows you to, to uh, the, the state suggests several schedules and allows you to make up your own if you like, so long as it isn't in a greater, um, doesn't have a greater tax exemption benefit than they suggest. And, and we thought we would keep it simple um, of having a five-year schedule that um, had a declining rate starting at an 80% exemption on the new on the taxes due on the new value created. So first year would be an 80, it would then go to 70, 60, 50, 40. I believe over those five years, um, and you, we, we always try to do some estimates on how, um, how, on what that might look like for various projects or various um, types of properties around town. And um, we really started looking at it more closely when we were considering um, your question from last time about uh, incorporate about how we might be able to incorporate. Uh, having a requirement for sustainability features built into this. And when you look at the numbers uh, and you look at the, the uh, um, the target for who this program is essentially designed for, and recall that we're we're trying to create incentives for some of those businesses that don't get to enjoy the uh, benefits that come with uh, large projects in urban renewal areas. Those are our mom and pop shops. They're often properties that are valued at a million dollars or maybe two million dollars. So uh, with with the requirement then that the urban renewal or urban revitalization tax exemption area uh, within that you must create at least a 15 percent increase in value we started looking at what that would mean for various projects and we have a, a chart here um, <clears throat> we we have a, a chart of, of examples here with the first being uh, a property that is a half a million dollars and you could think about the area that is actually around uh, south of Pepperwood around Olympic Court and there there's some smaller properties very viable businesses working very well um, that are valued somewhere between five hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars those buildings and um, for uh, a building to uh, affect a 15% improvement in their value, for example, in the first example of the half million dollar building, they would have to improve the value uh, by $75,000. And oftentimes, well, as we all know, when we've made improvements to our own homes, you can spend $100,000 on a home and come out with $10,000 worth of new value on it. Uh, so we were we were looking at what that improvement, that large at least uh, $75,000 improvement would mean in tax savings. And and on that first row there, uh, their uh, five years of taxes on the whole property would would be $124,000. Compare that then with the tax exemption they would enjoy, and that would that value would only be seven thousand seven hundred total over those five years. So you can see for those essentially smaller businesses, for a seven thousand seven hundred dollar exemption on your one hundred twenty four thousand dollars worth of taxes, 
it's, it's, asking, it's a big ask for somebody to um, do at least a significant sustainability so, project. So if we were to require uh, photovoltaic panels or uh, brand new windows all around, uh, would, would you, A, be able to get to achieve the 15% increase in value uh, for the amount of money you would have to spend just to get $7,700 back. So that's on the small end, but there, and then you can jump up to say a million dollar building and, and obviously the numbers double here, um, but still the in the second example, the uh, improvement would have to be worth at least $150,000. And for that, um, the tax exemption over five years on that property would be 15, just $15,400. So again, even on a million dollar property, and some examples there would be like, uh, I looked up on the assessor's site, Sherwin-Williams is right around a million dollars, Burger King down there is right around a million dollars or so. Um, where, where it gets significant and where we might be able to justify requiring a, uh, a larger investment in sustainability features is when there are larger projects, such as the new enterprise car rental building that's just in front of the old Menards. Um, that you can see here, that's, uh, that created a lot of new value simply because there hadn't been a building on that site, a $2 million uh, building it is now. Um, their taxes on that are about $344,000 in a five-year window. Our tax exemption, if applied there on that particular improvement, would have equaled $136,500. Was that making sense? I'm kind of walking through that. So we've got two other examples here. The Paul's renovation into the Harbor Freight uh, store and others along in there on, on Highway 1. And then the old Kmart renovation. These are actual numbers here. So those projects, because of of their nature and because of their size might provide enough uh, funding over the five years for a person to consider a significant investment in sustainability. What we wanted to discuss with you is how, uh, what, knowing this now, how would you like us to proceed with this tax exemption? Area, these tax exemption areas, knowing the sort of vast difference in uh, benefit that could come to our commercial areas, and knowing that we want to um, extend benefits to maintain small businesses, keep them growing here in Iowa City, et cetera, et cetera. Did with, I frame that up okay, mm -hmm. you think? Yeah, with the, yeah, with the exemption schedule that you've given us, the 80, 70, 60, 50, 40, is that the max that we can go under state law? We could continue that um, for another five years and a con in a continuously declining schedule. That's one option. We couldn't go any higher on any of those years. Um, we could also do alternatively three years of 100% exemption on the new value uh, and I th and the three-year schedule and the five-year schedule are roughly equal 
uh, okay. for net present value. Uh, the 10-year schedule is more of a benefit. Uh, we were a little nervous going to 10 years given that we haven't used this program before. We haven't used this provision in state code. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a little more unknown the farther you go out. And values will fluctuate over those 10 years on their own even without this program. So looking at the, you know, as Wendy said, kind of the vast difference in uh, the tax benefits, um, you know, one way we could treat it is that if it's new construction, that's one category, mm -hmm. effectively, uh, as opposed to uh, a renovation on, say, a half a million dollar building. Um, it's hard to imagine how $7,700 would be enough to incentivize, um, you know, something substantial um, that would uh, still increase the value 15%. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those solar panels aren't going to increase the value of the property um, substantially. Uh, so it's hard to picture how that would work out. Um, but say, you know, uh, Paul's uh, renovated without any tax incentives from us. So um, if we can use that as a carrot uh, to entice them to do some more sustainability uh, benefits, that um, maybe that meets a threshold in which we could uh, do that. And uh, another idea that we uh, kicked around um, was to uh, require a, a mid-am audit um, uh, that's free to the, the property owner, um, even with those smaller projects. So, uh, you know, say you're getting a $7,700 tax benefit, um, perhaps that information being in your hands is, is helpful as well, just uh, having that audit in place. So I'm afraid I didn't read this carefully enough. Um, I ran out of time, basically. Uh, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit under-informed with regard to a couple of things. So do I understand correctly that you're proposing something that, that would be targeted towards sustainability improvements, or is that just a possible way in which my That's just a possible way. Yeah, it, okay. it we started, also talked about child care, I think, maybe. Right, so, uh, yeah. other public benefits, essentially. Yeah. You know, we started with this program, as Wendy said, to, to try and have some sort of incentive program for, you know, say it's a one- or two-story commercial building that otherwise isn't going to rise to the level to get a TIF incentive from us. We were trying to, you know, one of the criticisms we heard that we were focusing our in public investment, you know, tax investment in uh, limited areas or to a limited number of property owners. And so we were trying to expand that pool, but um, sometimes with some of these benefits, especially on those smaller value properties, it feels like a, trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole that um, it might be a stretch for some of those improvements. Okay, a couple other things on my mind, then I'll okay. stop here. Uh, first, um, can you provide examples? Don't, don't answer this right yet. Let me get the other question out. So can you provide examples of the kinds of investments or businesses, et cetera, in the areas that are designated in that map you showed us, Wendy? Can you provide examples of what, what could possibly happen uh, and that would um, be responsive to this particular tax incentive? The second is... Uh, yeah, how can we protect ourselves from providing tax incentives for investments that would take place regardless of the tax incentive? Well, the second question first, it will be very difficult yeah. to do that piece of it, not evaluating the projects on a case-by-case -case basis. You know, as opposed to TIF, where you have to approve each project as they come through, this is a by-right um, a by right incentive. Uh, and so it would be hard to parse out who would have done the project anyway. We're not going to be doing a gap analysis on a case-by-case -case basis on these. Um, and, you know, part of the logic is to provide some 
um, certainty for those. You know, most communities that use this provision in state code, it's uh, communities that aren't getting investment at all, that are trying to uh, incentivize some type of building. And obviously, you know, we're not in that boat. Um, so that's probably why we haven't used it to date, but we do have some commercial areas that aren't seeing that same investment. And so hopefully extending these areas to those um, commercial districts will help spur some investment or um, at least uh, maybe provide the, be the tipping point in which somebody would make that investment or maybe do it a little bit sooner or maybe they can make that investment a little bit larger than they would have otherwise. You know, if they were gonna invest in their property and it was only gonna be a, a projected 10 or 12% increase in value, maybe this is enough to, you know, push them to do a little bit more there. Um, uh, so uh, to your first question, examples of investments, you know, those uh, three at the bottom there are actual projects. Uh, and that's where we felt that there were almost two tiers of these. You know, if somebody's building a new building on what is currently a parking lot, they're probably going to do that regardless. If they're going to invest two or three million dollars, it's probably um, irrespective of whether or not they're getting $136,000 in tax benefits. And so that's where we felt that maybe there was some wiggle room to, um, to put an additional requirement there. You know, if Enterprise Rent-A-Car is building anyway, maybe we say you can take advantage of this program if you do X, Y, and Z uh, for us, whether that's child care or sustainability um, features or what have you. Um, we can... Um, a cap the level of investment. We could say that this is for investments between A and B, uh, and that um, you know anything greater than that isn't eligible for the program. And so we could remove some of those larger projects, or we could have them tiered such that those larger projects are then uh, subject to additional requirements. Simon, are there any existing communities that already have environmental incentives for tax abatement that we could model? And not that I'm aware of using this provision of state code. The examples we've looked at were mostly either um, residential programs that were for areas that um, were completely blighted um, or were for um, very distressed commercial districts that right. uh, they were just looking for somebody to do something, whether they had um, vacant buildings or um, uh, surface parking lots or what have you, just trying to spur some investment. And in terms of the child care, how, how would, I mean, obviously that wouldn't be across the board. We can't have a million child care. How, how would that work? Would we have, because we can't, it has to be generalized. Mm -hmm. um, how does that work? Maybe I direct that to Eleanor in terms of, I, I think for like the in, environmental standard that maybe could be, you know, universalized, but how would that work if we were to do I something along those lines? I think an ongoing obligation to provide something is going to be much more difficult to deal with with this tool than this something tool. that's part of the construction yeah, okay. up front. So my concern is valid. Okay, sure. Yes. So, yeah, the difference with TIF is we certify that year by year. They don't yeah. get that year's uh, tax rebate unless we say you have fulfilled your obligations. This one, once it's approved at the assessor's office, okay. it doesn't come back to us at all. They just don't pay those taxes up front. So I definitely think if we're providing tax incentives for uh, some form of new construction, that it, it needs to be tied to our climate action objectives and, and carbon emission reduction objectives. Anything else would be hypocritical. So we, we need to figure out how to do that. And, and if it's illegal, well, it's illegal. But if it's legal, we need to figure out how to do it. Yep, there's a lot of... Oh, I don't sorry. think it's a question of legality. I think it's a question of, as Simon's talked about, whether um, 
it's it's going to work from a incentive financial perspective. Mm -hmm. But in terms of that seven thousand dollar example that you used. Um, if they're going to already, that's assuming that the only improvement they make is for the environmental improvement, what if they're already going to do even a higher amount, right? And this would just be part of that. So like, say, for example, the renovation to Harbor Freight, um, they may not, you know, they may have been willing to do that anyway, but once they're aware of that, oh, I can qualify for this, then they may be incentivized to do something they otherwise would not have done, which I still think is a good idea. The second thing related to that issue is there may be a lot of people that, I mean, presumably they'd already be eligible for other state and federal tax credits, so this would be in addition to other eligible tax credits and incentives that they could do. So I think to that concern, um, I would still want to at least try to do it. Um, and I can't imagine there aren't some communities, maybe it's always good to start with Iowa, obviously, but somewhere in the United States where we could have a identifiable, workable standard for what those sort of building requirements look like. I mean, Eleanor, could we adopt, for example, we've talked about how we don't have the regulatory authority to require um, a higher standard than the state, but could we require a higher standard as a condition of receipt of the um, property tax? Yes, I think. Abatement, okay. Well, that strikes me as one rel relatively 2018 or whatever staff decides that, that would be relatively feasible. <clears throat> I think it's, I agree. I think we need to do something that's tiered um, and maybe even, I guess I want some more time to think about this before we actually vote on recommending moving it forward. Does that sound it's more reasonable like a work together? Session, yeah. yeah, I just because in seeing this this grid for the first time, because I don't I don't think that was in the packet, was it? Yeah, okay. So seeing this for the first time and, and thinking about some of the comments that staff has made in terms of. You know, you, you have these smaller projects and, you know, the amount of taxes that are going to get exempted over a five-year period is probably not enough incentive to change somebody's behavior in terms of what they're doing. And so what kinds of requ additional requirements we mm -hmm. might want to put on that or not put on that. And, and I think that even comes into the new construction. Um, maybe if that new construction is over a million or over two million or whatever you know threshold we might come up with, then maybe at that point you're looking at more um, significant re significant requirements in terms of the environmental sustainability and those sorts of things. Because the other thing I look at with these and. While I agree with you, Jim, on the, the environmental sustainability, there comes a point where people are, and you've got to figure out what that level is in terms of what are we going to require in terms of that sustainability and what the cost is. But if you look at the map, I look at those and look at these areas as ones where, in general, we need some revitalization. These are getting kind of old and worn down, and maybe not every building in the area is looking that way, but there's enough of it that you could be getting to the tipping point in these areas. And so just looking at incentivizing that improvement and what that does to the other buildings around it and what it also does to the tax base. So 
it's not that I'm saying we shouldn't put some requirements in on the environmental, but I think I think we need to look carefully at that. So I'd like a little more time to kind of process. And can we? Could you email us, Wendy, this chart? Sure. That would be helpful to have in, in front of me as I kind of think through what some of those standards might be and what some of those tiers might be. Eleanor, are there any limitations in terms of how we can break it up in terms of what qualifies or do, what doesn't? For example, um, we can limit it to new construction, or is it like once it's in the district, it has to be across the board? Like, are there any statutory limitations? You, you have to define what the qualifying property is. Okay. And so as long as you can do that clearly, you can okay. you could do different different incentives for different qualifications. So. And along with what Susan, maybe sort of synthesizing what Jim and Susan had said, I mean, so it sounds like maybe we probably want to keep it simple as possible, mm -hmm. too. Right. But to the extent that we can, it may be that we would want tiered environmental standards so that if it's a bigger project, I'm just thinking out loud here, that, that maybe we are more demanding, that there'd be more financial wherewithal. If it's more of a micro project, maybe there'd be a little bit more flexibility in terms of what would require. But, um, and I think staff can maybe just sort of dive into that. Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll flesh that out better. You know, obviously as as we're clearly we're categories, maybe one or two. Well, there's another factor with regard to this energy efficiency part, and that is if they in fact get a financial incentive from the city to invest in enhanced energy efficiency, they're going to benefit in the long run because their their utility costs are going to be cut down. So it's not as if that's the only thing driving kind of forcing them to do something mm -hmm. that wouldn't benefit them. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree. But you, but you want it, yeah. you want them to take advantage of it, and when I think the the low the little amount of money and the fact you have to increase the value by fifteen percent, it, it, it just doesn't pencil out. I don't I mm -hmm. think when you're talking about those small ones, right? And certainly, we're still getting our arms wrapped around this sure. program. So we'll do some more research into that and uh, come back with maybe a, a couple of tiers that could work. Um, I think, as Simon said earlier, you could still have some kind of educational component in the smaller ones about requiring an audit or that kind of thing that isn't a financial investment. It's all part of that changing the culture thing. Mm -hmm. And to complicate things a little bit more, I don't want you to be surprised when you see this come to the full council, but uh, HCDC just did review a proposal that came out of a committee that we put together as part of the Affordable Housing Action Plan. Uh, this code chapter can be used for residential as well, and you have more flexibility in that uh, for multifamily residential. Uh, and so we uh, put together a committee of staff and outside stakeholders uh, to review it. Um, uh, basically, we found that uh, with the developers and bankers and everyone in the room that it really didn't pencil out to be used for uh, many projects other than LIHTC projects. Uh, so the recommendation that'll be coming to you is to use it for um, LIHTC projects only, and those would be approved on a case-by-case -case basis. We wouldn't proactively set up districts like we uh, showed with the commercial areas, uh, but if we did have a, a LIHTC proposal come forward, it's something that you could consider uh, with the recommendation being a 40% uh, tax uh, 
exemption over 10 years, uh, and that would require that rents and um, uh, tenants are at 40% of AMI. Initially, the proposal went to HCDC with um, renters being up to 60% of AMI, but rents had to be at 40%, uh, with the concern being that if you set those at the exact same level, anybody below that 40% is already cost burdened, and so you have to find tenants that are almost exactly at that 40%, um, but HCDC uh, modified that recommendation before it'll come back to you to be at 40% uh, for both. Um, so that'll be coming to you soon. And well. in response to your question about daycare, I mean, it, uh, the affordability thing is was, was similar in terms of having yeah. to, yeah. you know, it's a buy right thing and then you have to monitor, but when you connect it to a LIHTC project mm -hmm. who, that's already got that monitoring in place independent yeah. of the tax exemption. Yep. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right, any other comments? Okay. The only quick comment is to Eleanor's point about the education. It does strike me that, you know, a lot of times when you talk to a solar provider, you get the sales pitch of how much money you're going to save. I'm wondering in terms of a part of our economic development as well as our climate change, do we provide that resource now um, just in terms of a general assessment for residents in terms of how much money they're likely to save if they adopt a particular environmental sustainability or not? It may be beyond the wherewithal for us to do that, but I'm hoping that if we do some of these incentives and some of those, maybe the business owners sometimes are pretty private about what their costs are, but to the extent that they can, it'd be nice once we start developing these projects, if they can say, hey, I've saved, you know, I'm, a, I'm part of this green district, I've saved X number of dollars, hopefully we can also um, get some imitation with that. Yeah, I think as, as you had, as you declared your climate crisis, you asked for more of that education yeah. and outreach of staff, and that's yeah. going to be part of our plan, okay. perhaps part of a new position's focus would okay. be to get that information out there. Okay, from a neutral, non-selling party. Yeah. yeah. Well, I and I think just because I was in this meeting yesterday, there there is a new nonprofit forming the, the Johnson Energy Conservation District, yes, yes. and so that meeting yesterday was just kind of a strategic planning meeting. So to, they had a draft strategic plan and looking at how they're going to get that organization up and running and kind of what their priorities are going to be. And you know, a big part of that is going to be education, and then you know, maybe looking at how they or the city or other entities can incentivize or, you know, so th so there's people starting to do that work outside of the city structure that I think it's going to be important for us to keep in touch with and coordinate with who may be really able to help with this on, kind of on the ground yep. level of making um, some significant changes. So I'm um, really looking forward to the work that they're doing. So Susan. Okay. Uh, item number six, staff report. No, I have anything else. That's okay. That's, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's all right. That's all right. Anything? You You've talked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> anything else from the committee? I just real quickly want to thank staff again and the city manager's office. I, I think the work that you have done so far with Tailwinds is absolutely the kind of approach that works really well for the developers and for the council. Um, the, more the, the more that they can know what we expect, it saves them so much time and money and heartache and they don't 
they, they know the hoops they have to jump through. And so I really appreciate uh, your time and effort in giving them directions. Yeah, I was going to say that, too. I think you all hit it out of the park today. I know you always try to anticipate what the council as a whole wants to do. Sometimes you hear direct opposite things in terms of what you should do, and it's easier said than done. But it's nice when you feel like there is that alignment um, where you anticipate what you think, and it turns out we actually do agree with that. So I think just awesome work. Yeah. Thank you. Any other business? Yep. Nope. Motion to adjourn? So moved. All in favor? Second. <laughs> All those in I'm favor say aye. 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 All right, we are adjourned. Right. Thank you.